Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. This is the last uh, sermon in this subsection of foundations that I'm teaching on. And what it actually is dealing with is the creation mandate that we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and 2.15. I've talked all about creation and exegeted first and second chapter of Genesis. Then we went into identity. How does identity play out? And now we're just going to take one last look at this section of Scripture and talk about the creation mandates. We see them in the first two chapters of Genesis. And this topic, I have to tell you at the outset, is sometimes referred to as a cultural mandate. But that can be and has been very misleading throughout church history. The cultural mandate identifies God's plan for mankind as it's laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's described as follows uh, by nine marks. That's Mark Dever's website. I just thought it was interesting. I'll pull this up here. I agree with what he's saying. Number one, the cultural mandate is the command to exercise dominion over the earth, subdue it, and develop its latent potential. God calls all human beings, as those made in his image, to fill the earth with his glory through creating what we commonly call culture. Not culture in the sense of hip-hop culture or teen culture, or something like that. It's just talking about a worldview, a, a civilization, if you will. Secondly, the cultural mandate is given to all people. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it's given to Adam and Eve as the only people at that time and as representatives of all humanity. They are our first parents. But also, in Genesis 9, 1, it is repeated and given to Noah as a re- representative of all humanity post-flood. So this cultural mandate, this creation mandate, was repeated after the flood. Thirdly, therefore, the cultural mandate is not just for the people of God. Moreover, it's not uniquely tied to the gospel or the Great Commission. Some people confuse this with the Great Commission. You should not do that. Because that is a distinct mandate given to the people of God alone. Matthew 28. It's not given to human beings generally. These mandates that I'm going to be talking about, there's three of them, three elements to it, are given to humanity. They're generally speaking, saved and unsaved. Genesis 1.28 gives us the first biblical answers to our defining questions of life. It gives us purpose. We learn that human beings were created in God's image not only to glorify him and enjoy him forever, but also to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Theologians sometimes refer to that, as I said, the cultural mandate. But some have really used the cultural mandate to justify bigotry and bias. Years ago, I worked with church planting pastors in South Africa and had the privilege of visiting that magnificent country. It is amazing, wonderfully beautiful country. The Afrikaners were Dutch settlers who first arrived at the Cape of Good Hope in 1652. And through less than precise hermeneutics, they misinterpreted the scriptures 
and found biblical warrant for their abhorrent approach to the indigenous peoples of the country. I'm talking about apartheid, which means separate or alone. A country that they colonized and a people over which they became the dominant culture, even though they were the minority. Apartheid was practiced as early as 1936 in in an organized fashion and promoted through what they called land acts, which set aside more than 80% of South Africa's land for the white minority. 80% of the land was designated for the white minority. And the people then were divided into distinct groups of Bantus, who they referred to as the blacks, colored, who were of mixed race, and white. Bantus and coloreds were not allowed in the white areas, which comprised 80% of the country's landmass. And they were issued passes authorizing them presence in those restricted areas. That's why you have this Land Act and the Pass Act. All of this was sanctioned and promoted, here it is, by the Dutch Reformed Church. By the Dutch Reformed Church, the dominant church of that area, and other Christian denominations of white constituency. Now they base their beliefs, apartheid, on the misinterpretation of the cultural mandate taken from Genesis 1 and 2, which we're going to be talking about this morning, coupled with Acts 17.26. And then you don't have to turn there, but Acts 17.26 talks about God making from one man every, uh, of one, excuse me, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, and here it is, the boundaries of their habitation. So they took that out of context and used it to promote apartheid. Just a horrible, horrible policy. They believed, as white Christians, they had a duty to make, shape, and steward culture. And that the Bible promoted the separation of races. This is, of course, further development of colonialization, which took place in the 15th through the 19th century, spreading civilization on Christian, and Christianity and commerce. It's called the three C's. Okay? So that was in the minds of Western Europeans. And, and today, this whole brouhaha about white supremacy and about Europeans and everything else is continuation of that, folks. These things have long tails. Long tails. T-A-I-L-S. When I visited the country, it was in a post-apartheid country, and the Dutch Reformed Church, one of apartheid's staunchest supporters, was still reeling from their eisegetical air. And I remember talking to our sponsor, who was an Afghaner, and I asked him about it, and he said, oh, we don't even want to discuss it. Okay? So this whole church was still there, still dominant as a Christian church, Dutch Reformed Church, but they had to back off of that stance, thank God. Well, needless to say, that's not what we understand the Bible to teach when we refer to the cultural mandate or creation mandate. We understand the creation mandate to be comprised of God's initial guidance to the first human couple, Adam and Eve, and by extension to humanity in general as Adam and Eve are our first parents 
The creation mandate is comprised of three directives, and you can see them in your bulletin. Production, which encompasses work and the need to be productive as human beings on earth. Protection, which covers the rule in subduing with care and with cultivation, the earth that we live on. And procreation, that people on the earth are to have offspring because we are God's regents. We are here to watch over as stewards of this planet. So with that introduction, let's go to prayer and seek God's assistance. Father, as we come before your word today and recognize that this has been terribly uh, misinterpreted and terribly abused um, in, in the history of the church, Father, we pray that we would have a clear understanding of this so that we might be obedient Christians. It's a mandate. It's, it's a, a command that you give and have given through Adam and Eve to the rest of humanity. And Lord, we need to make good on this. Um, it's important for us. But Father, help us to not be um, abusing the scriptures and taking things out of context. Thank you for hearing our prayer and for guiding and directing us in advance. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at Genesis 2.15... We see very clearly, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Well, right at the very beginning, we see that God has given Adam work to do in the garden. And like the Afghaners of South Africa, we can misinterpret the scriptures when it comes to the whole idea of work, can't we? Should we talk about work a little bit? (laughs) Many simply believe work to be a part of the curse post-fall. Where God pronounced, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat of it. Therefore, work is evil. Some people actually believe this. But we must remember that prior to sin entering into the world... God had already mandated that Adam and Eve had work to do. They were to cultivate the garden and keep the garden. Now, it's a sad reality that many view work in a negative light. Bumper stickers read, quote, I'd rather be fishing, end quote. I'm not calling anybody out on this. I'm just saying. (laughs) Or, I owe, owe, owe. So it's off to work I go. All of us can relate to that. How many employees consider their work a necessary evil? Where they need to put in their time while they're always looking forward to the weekend when they're not working. Until they reach retirement age, at which point they plan to quit working. Right? There's an attitude that whatever we do should be fun and effortless and refreshing. And that work kind of cuts that out. For most, their jobs are anything but fun, effortless, and refreshing. Now, what does the Bible say about work? And and is there really a creation mandate that addresses work? The answer is yes, very much so. As always, the Bible addresses the topic of work with, with great balance. The longer I study the word of God, the more I see how balanced it always is. 
And so, on the one hand, it promotes and praises industriousness, Proverbs 14, 23, in all labor, there is reward. It's good to work. It brings reward. But it does not endure or endorse overwork as a virtue. And instead encourages times of relaxation as well. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 says this. Better is a handful of rest than two handfuls of hard work and chasing after the wind. I'd say the two handfuls of hard work and chasing after the wind is the alcoholic. Never satisfied, always busy, busy, busy. Never releasing and taking rest. The preacher in Ecclesiastes sums it up by saying this, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his hard work. Ecclesiastes 2.24, I like that. But it's balanced with rest. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. To worship God, yes, but also to rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. It's a theme throughout Scripture. And as always, the Bible addresses the topic of work with great balance. So in the beginning, there was work and it was good. They were to cultivate and keep the garden. Now we know this is a pre-fall command because... The location is the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delights. And we know that the origin of work is from God because he sovereignly took the man and put him into Eden. I always liked that. He didn't ask Adam, would you like to go to the Garden of Eden? Do you have any other ideas that, you know, you'd like to share with me? Should we collaborate on this? God is sovereign. And we see it right from the very beginning. He didn't discuss this with Adam. He merely took the man and put him into Eden. Genesis 1.28 says that work is a gift given as a blessing. Look at verse 28. God blessed them. Right at the front of the verse. God blessed them. And the man was to cultivate the garden. Now the word cultivate in Hebrew language means to dress it. To become a husbandman. To labor, work, or serve. That's what the word cultivate means. And the garden, by extension, becomes earth, God's creation, because Genesis 1.26, God commanded that Adam, created in the image of God, is to rule over everything on the earth. It didn't just stop when Adam died. He passed it on to his children, and from generation to generation, and it is a general mandate. It's a creation mandate, and it has not been rescinded. And in 128, he's told that he is to subdue the earth. Those are strong words. The word subdue means to make it subservient. To dominate or to bring into subjection, which goes a long way with ruling over the earth. Mankind, as human beings, are God's regents over the earth. We're stewards. And we have a responsibility over the earth. The bottom line in all this is that God gave Adam work to do in the garden prior to the fall, and therefore work is not a curse, but instead work fits into the overall scheme which God created, and in verse 31 of chapter 1, he called it all very good, very good. So work is good. Now there's clear commendations to diligent work in the Bible. The Bible has an awful lot to say about the value of hard work. 
Work is worthwhile, Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. So shut up and pick up a shovel. Get your hands dirty. Do some work. Quit talking. Hunger motivates work. I like this, Proverbs 16, 26. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. Working encourages giving. Ephesians 4.28 says, He who steals must steal no more, but rather he must work so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And finally, work, our work, is for the Lord, not for men. This is so important. If you didn't mark any verses down, mark this one down. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. As for the Lord, get your priorities squared away. Work is not evil, and the work that in God's providence you've been given to do, you are to do it as to the Lord and not to people. And that means that crusty old boss that you have that drives you nuts. You need to work for him. Now, there are clear warnings against laziness. Laziness is the biblical antonym of the word work. The casual look at the Proverbs also provides an instant look at the characteristics of the lazy person. Number one, he hates work. Proverbs 21, 25, the sluggard's craving will be the death of him. Why? Because his hands refuse to work. Lazy people are lovers of sleep. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Proverbs 26, 14. You know, if you read one proverb for the date that it is, you would read the whole book of Proverbs every month. I really recommend doing that. There's so much wisdom there. This is my absolute favorite proverb about work. Those who are lazy are delusional, and they're filled with excuses. Proverbs 26.13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. So he doesn't go outside his door. He will not go to work. Fear-driven, right? A lazy man is a time waster. Proverbs 18.9, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great waster. Proverbs 26.16 tells us that those who are lazy are self-deceived. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. He's got it all figured out. And finally, Paul tells us the bottom, of this, the bottom line here, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. No worky, no eaty. I, I think we could apply some of these principles and, and have a, a much more productive society. Now, I once knew a man who shared his philosophy of working for an employer with me, that, and it's always amazed me. He said, quote, the purpose of my work is to make my employer money. That's what he hired me for, and that's what I'm supposed to do. And the better I do my job, the more my employer will profit, end quote. I believe that he held a correct and biblical attitude towards work. Much of the dissatisfaction with many employees today is that we do not see They do not see themselves in that way. Instead, they only view their work for what they can get out of it, forgetting that they're an employee. 
It's not to say that the laborer is not worthy of his hire because the Bible teaches just the opposite. Quote, the laborer should be paid fairly for their work. So you should be paid for your work. It's not just all for the boss and you get nothing. But if the laborer is only in it for himself, then I can guarantee that discontent is sure to follow. Remember I said Colossians 3.23, work is for the Lord rather than for man. You see, God created Adam to be productive and we too should be industrious and diligent in our labor, whatever that may be. And if you're in a dead-end job and it's just not going anywhere and you, you're just dissatisfied and find your heart constantly grumbling and complaining about it, change it. Get trained to do something else. Find, pray, 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 and find someplace else to work where you can be more free to work as to the Lord and not to men. If you're being treated unfairly, and I would say a dead-end job is an unfair treatment of the laborer. Or poor wages, unfair treatment of the laborer. Well, secondly, in the mandate, we are told we should be protective. We are to rule and subdue the earth. That means to care and protect the earth. Now, God made the heavens and the earth just as he made humanity. And there are many places in the Psalms that show his natural creation reflecting glory back to God. They do it much better than we do, actually. Psalm 19 is obviously the most familiar. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. This goes along with Romans chapter 1. Everybody knows that there's a God based on natural revelation, the creation. Just look at the stars. Now, obviously, God intends mankind to take care of their home, the earth. Malicious pollution and disregard for the earth has never been condoned by God. Now, don't get alarmed here. (laughs) In fact, he designated a very detailed preservation of the land for his nation of Israel, commanding that they work the land for six years, but on the seventh year, it would be a Sabbath rest for the land, and they were to let it lay fallow. Six years of work, one year of rest. Very, very interesting. That is a Sabbath rest for the land to replenish itself. You you can find that in... Leviticus chapter 25, 1 through 4, where it talks about that seventh year of rest. And then interestingly enough, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8, it talks about seven Sabbaths of years, or seven times seven years. Kind of sounds like Daniel to me. Seven times seven years, which comes out to 49 years, and they were to give the land rest on the 49th year. Of course, that would be the Sabbath rest. But then the following year, they had to give the land rest for two years because it was jubilee. It was a jubilee. And you can find that in Leviticus 25. Now, here's the kicker. So serious was God about this ecological system that in Jeremiah 25, 12, we see Jeremiah attributing Israel's Babylonian captivity of 70 years to a direct relation of Israel not keeping covenant 
by giving the land its Sabbath rest for 490 years. For 490 years, Israel just worked the land and didn't keep their covenant with God and his mandate to give the land rest once every seven years for 490 years. You take seven, divide it into 490, you get, come on, 70. 70, which is really interesting because in Chronicles 36, 20 through 21, verse 20, it shows that the, the, um, the whole captivity, it talks about the Babylonian captivity, and then in verse 21 it says, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. So for the 70 years that Israel was in captivity, the land laid fallow, 70 years. One year for each of the Sabbaths that they did not keep. This is amazing. You think God is not about ecology and taking care of the earth? He is. He is. God is concerned about how we treat the earth. And his care given to mankind, extended to the animal kingdom as well. He cares about the animals. We read in the Bible, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animals. You see somebody that kicks their dog, takes their cat by the tail and swings it and throws it out the door. That is not a righteous man. Okay? Somebody that treats their their farm animals in a poor way. The horses, you can see the ribs, and the cows, you can see the ribs, and they're still working the horses and still getting milk from the cows. They're not righteous. Not to mention that God rescued animals in his creation from the flood. He's got an eye on these things. But as with all good gifts of God, men corrupt his kind intention. And in this case, they fulfill Romans 1, 21 through 25 as they worship that which was created rather than the creator. We're living in a time when there's a very serious movement to preserve the earth. Have you ever heard of climate change? How about every day? Even if it means decreasing human population. Climate change, overpopulation, carbon footprint, and so many other causes that are quickly becoming a religion. When I did a study on Revelation a number of years ago, it's online. We taught Revelation, I think, for two and a half years. That was a long series. But in the book of Revelation, there's an astounding picture of such rebellion where earth dwellers, under the judgment of God during the tribulation, especially in the sixth seal, shows they know that God is pouring out his wrath upon them and the earth, and yet they still want to hide in the rocks from him and escape the consequences of their rebellion. But they know where the wrath is coming from. The tribulation and wrath associated with this coming hour is intended to test those whose home, citizenship, and focus is earthward rather than heavenly. Now, this is a warning to us who live on the earth, and we are to care for it, cultivate, keep it, but we should not worship it. We need to protect ourselves against that. The phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, takes on a soteriological, that's salvation, and eschatological, that's future things, meaning, in the book of Revelation, for it denotes 
that the unsaved at the time of the end, who steadfastly continue in their rejection of God, are called those who dwell upon the earth, earth dwellers. In contrast to the faithful who are aliens and sojourners upon the earth, we have another home, a city without foundations or with foundations, whose hope is in heavenward things. These that dwell upon the earth are trusting in man and his environment. This is so pertinent to today. These are the spiritual offspring of the humanists of our day that will be very, very prevalent during the tribulation period. Believers are not among these earth dwellers, for the earth dwellers ultimately hate believers, and they martyr them during the tribulation. Now, if you were of the world, Jesus said, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, John fifteen nineteen. You see, the earth dwellers are apostates from Christianity, having deliberately and determinately rejected the heavenly calling and chose the earth so that God may have heaven and they can have the earth. They're determined to have the earth as their place and their portion. In spite of the devastating horrors of the sixth trumpet, which, they, which it'll actually kill one-third of mankind, devastating, just devastating, the earth dwellers will not repent of their wickedness. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 9. Just to get a picture of this, is just staggering. Revelation 9, 20 through 21. This is what all those who have decided to reject God and a heavenward mentality and have decided to embrace the earth and preserving the earth, so they're worshiping the earth, this is what their end is going to end up being. And we see it in verse 20 through 21, 9, 20 through 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, which is one-third of the earth, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor did their source, nor of their sorceries, or of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And then I want you to turn over to chapter 16 real quick. And let's look at verse 11. 16 is talking about the sixth bowl of wrath and everything that comes down on it. Oh, I just can't help it. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given uh, to it, to the sun, to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. They did not repent to give him glory. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and verse 11, and they blaspheme the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Beloved, these are the earth dwellers. These are the ones that have prioritized the earth over the God of heaven, their creator. Psalm 2, 1 through 3 is a precursor and a description of the rebellion of such people who do want, they don't want the ref, to be refrained by God. And the very things that bring security 
and guidance for God's children, his care and guidance, are unbearable restraints to the unregenerate, and they are in a rage to remove them at any cost. Now, in God's creation mandate, he gave into the hand of Adam and Eve, and by extension, us, humankind, the directive and purpose for their lives that they were to produce, they were to work and be productive in a command given while in the garden prior to the fall. He also expected them to cultivate and keep the environment. That is, they were to protect it and not worship it. So produce and protect. Finally, there's a third point presented as a creation mandate, and it extends to all humanity, and that is to be procreative, multiplying. God is very clear in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now the elements within the mandate are very, very clear. This is a direct command of God, obviously. God gave it. It's not a suggestion. It's not an opinion. Secondly, this command is said to be a blessing. It's not a curse. Thirdly, the use of the plural pronoun them includes the man and the woman. There's that divine binary again. And the command is that the man and the woman and humanity at large by extension, is to procreate and multiply on the earth as the regents of God. But mankind is in rebellion against God's authority and always comes out on the other side of what God reveals his will to be. Always. I want to stop any idea that I'm promoting or aligning with a quiverful movement. If any of you have watched Shiny Happy People, you'll know what the Quiverful movement is. Okay? Comes out of Bill Cothard. It's crept into homeschool. And that whole mentality of you should not plan your family. You should have as many children as your wife can possibly bear because we're going to take over this country and we're going to make it America again. I think we forgot that Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, he will establish his kingdom when he returns on earth, but it's not for us to establish it for him. Children are a gift from God, but some have they, they used eisegesis again, their own interpretation, pouring it into Psalm 127, 3 through 5, to mean a family should refrain from planning and have as many children as possible. Now, if that's your choice between you and your husband... And God, God bless you. I'm not against large families. I come from a family of six. I'm number five. And I'm not against 10 kids, 12 kids, however many. That's between you and God. But I don't think we should mandate it and then use God's word, like the Afrikaners did, to mandate every woman that's married is to have kids until... Oh, Beloved, we saw this in Taliabo with the tribal people. Didn't we, Mary? Those, ba- those, those ladies had so many babies and they just got weaker and weaker and weaker. This thinking goes hand in hand, the quiverful movement, with another movement that espouses training children for the express purpose of returning America to Christian nation. These things are aberrant. They're they're misinterpretations of Scripture. And I'm a patriot. 
I think this is a great country, and I think we should vote, and I think we should do everything to preserve the liberties that we have in this country. But boy, we can get off track very quickly. Each couple has the freedom in the Lord as to how their family will go. Sometimes plans are made, and God surprises the family. We're only going to have two children. They end up with four. Okay, they did everything to not end up with four. Okay, God is sovereign, right? And sometimes God chooses to withhold children from a couple. That's his prerogative. We forget who's in charge. He is the sovereign in these matters. God's command to be fruitful and multiply basically means that married couples under normal circumstances, and if God chooses to bless them, should have children as part of their obedience to the creation mandate. But how many and when is up to God and the couple. Yet man is rebellious and has taken and corrupted even this wonderful mandate by promoting ideas and directives that are in direct opposition to God's mandate. You may have heard of a quote that's falsely attributed to Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Fund. It says this, quote, at least 4 billion useless eaters shall be eliminated by the year 2050 by means of limited wars, organized epidemics, and uh, fatal rapid-acting diseases and starvation. Now, that quote has been wrongly laid at Schwab's feet. He said other horrible things. He did not say that. It's really uh, from a book called Conspirators, and it touts that there's an all-powerful group called the Council of 300. Some of you conspiracy guys and gals may be aware of this. All I can say is this, this is just this generation's repackaged alarm of what my generation pointed at, the Rockefellers, Kennedys, and the Illuminati, okay? See, some of you are too old to even hear those terms and everything, but when I was young in the Lord and everything, they were the demon-possessed ones that were going to destroy the earth, and they may be. All I say is, is that it seems that in every generation we look for a select group of elitists that are behind the scenes and the mortal enemies of humanity. Biblically speaking, believers already know that it's Satan. He's the arch enemy of all things, God, and will in the last days raise up one man, the Antichrist, who will raise up a false prophet who is tasked with coercing those who dwell on the earth to worship the Antichrist and his image, the beast. We need look no further. Why are you wearing yourself out looking underneath the covers and behind the curtains to try and find the elitists that are plotting against? It's Satan, folks. And we go back to Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. That's what we need to be about, not the conspiracies of those that are going to dismantle the entire earth. You do know that there's a growing emphasis on depopulation right? They want to depopulate the earth by various ways and means. Our own vice president this week, if you read the news, said this, quote, when we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and they'll be able to drink clean water. That's the vice president of our United States. 
Uh, notice she said reduce population. Excuse me, how does that work? Well, we know one way is abortion. That will reduce population. I'll tell you what. If you want further information on how climate change has become a veritable religion and it's paganistic in its basic beliefs, get Daryl Harrison's Harrison's, uh, Just Thinking for Myself podcast. Daryl Harrison, Just Thinking for Myself podcast. They just uh, did a three-hour podcast. They're getting as bad as Joe Rogan. A biblical theology of climate change. It's excellent. It is excellent. And you, it's witty, too. It's a lot of fun to listen to. You can listen to it. But I did my own research. I didn't know they were going to drop that this week. And I listened to it, and I thought, oh, I hope nobody listens to that. It steals my thunder. They don't check with me. So I did my own research, and I found this group. And it's called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. I kid you not. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Now, just like you'll hear on that podcast, when I read this to you, you'll go, oh, Lynette, is that from Huffington Post or something? Or the Inquirer? Where did you get that? Listen, friends, this is real stuff. And what they say on that podcast is very real, and it's seeping down, and our kids are being taught this in schools. They're being taught through cartoons and through, dare I say, Disney movies. Okay? Here's what it says. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement is an environmental movement that calls for all people to abstain from reproduction in order to cause the gradual voluntary extinction of humankind. Vement supports human extinction primarily because it would prevent environmental environmental degradation. The extinctions of non-human species and the scarcity of resources caused by humans are frequently cited by the group as evidence of the harm caused by human overpopulation. Their tagline, you've got to love this, their tagline can be found on their website, vhemt.org, vhemt.org, and it goes like this, quote, Each time another one of us decides to not add another one of us to the burgeoning billions already squatting on this ravaged planet, another ray of hope shines through the gloom. I don't know about you. Do you know anybody that's squatting on this ravaged planet? Beloved, these things are insane. And yet they are very, very real. And it's, it's like... I don't know, somebody gave them permission or something. They're not incognito anymore. They're not even trying to hide this stuff anymore. It's everywhere present. So in summary, let me say this. God's creation mandate given to Adam and Eve provided purpose, even as they lived lives glorifying God. The mandate consists of those three clear imperatives. Be productive, be protective, and be procreative. Yet for each mandate we've already seen today, unregenerate people have devised ways to rebel and corrupt God's way with their own reasoning. Much of that reason follows and flows out of a heart that worships that which was created more than the creator himself. It's seen by the preference for leisure rather than healthy work. 
It's seen also rather than judiciously protecting the earth through careful care and cultivation, they promote worship of the earth using such terms as Mother Nature or Mother Earth, and they educate all of us on how we are to take steps to preserve the environment. We need to take care of the earth, but we need not worship it, and we dare not worship it. It's interesting that these same people that are so intent on preserving the earth and taking care of the earth are also very, very, very much for abortion and the murdering of children in the womb. What are they preserving the earth for if there's not going to be any children in generations to come? Thirdly, they promote projects and movements that will trim the population rather than adding to it by being fruitful and multiplying. As one astute observer said, if there are no children, what are you saving the earth for? I remember in the 70s I was on the other side back then. I wasn't a believer yet. And there was a lot of talk about overpopulation, and I bought into all that. You know, I was, and until I flew out west, and I looked out the plane window, I was flying over Dakotas and you know Montana, Wyoming, and all I saw was empty land. And I thought, population, are you kidding me? I mean, right, what I've just looked at can contain an awful lot of people. And at that time, I just thought, this is bogus. That was the beginning of the end. I shortly cut my hair thereafter and (laughs) said, I'm not for this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. This is bogus. And then the Lord got a hold of my life, thank God. So how are we supposed to respond to the creation mandate today? Simply, we're to obey all three of its directives but reasonably, with wisdom. And we should be aware of the many in our world who are doing everything in their power to disavow that such a mandate even exists and rather go with their own ideas far beyond what the Creator would have us do, which is rebellion. It's just rebellion. And in the end, I just want to leave you with one verse, which is a clear call of Jesus for all of our lives. It's from John fifteen ten and 11. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, listen to this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up these things to you and we recognize that we're living in a a terribly rebellious era where it seems like all stops have been pulled out and things are moving rapidly in a direction that is anti-God, anti-authoritarian and definitely opposed to you in every way, shape and form. Lord, many talk about persecution coming and it may come. But Lord, we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and we know if we have the spirit of God dwelling within us, We have a comforter, even though we might suffer persecution. Father, the truth of the matter is, is you're worth dying for. And your truth is worth dying for. So let us be strong, yet loving. Let us be adamant and yet caring as we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ for your glory. 
for all of our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.